0: FODMAP stands for Fermentable... Oh dear. (laughs) Hello and welcome to In The Guts, the weekly podcast digesting gut health research so that you don't have to. My name is Evie, that's Echo, Bravo, Echo, and this is a weekly podcast looking at the basics of digestive disorders and gut sensitivities. We're going to talk about some of those crappy stomach and digestive symptoms, pardon the pun, and some of the research around causes and treatments. I know that for young people like me, sometimes it's really difficult to get tailored health information and tips on how to approach doctors and specialists, particularly when we have less time, less disposable income, and sometimes less knowledge of or access to treatment options. For me, understanding gut health research and learning more about digestive disorders has really changed my life over the last six months. And I want to help other people have that journey, too. This week, we're going to start by learning how a lady called Sue changed the lives of IBS sufferers everywhere with some awesome research developments in 2005. We're also going to hear about what it's like living with these crappy symptoms and what the future of IBS research looks like. To get the boring disclaimers out the way, we aren't doctors and you can only be diagnosed by a medical practitioner. Any treatments are best done under the guidance of an accredited practicing dietitian who is trained in gut sensitivities. If you're having a medical emergency, please stop listening to this podcast and call triple zero. Come on, guys. You can find more information on this stuff at intheguts.com forward slash about if you're into that. So what's the deal with Sue and what's she done that's so special? Dr. Sue Shepard lives in Melbourne, Australia, and she's a dietitian. In the late nineties, whilst we were all walking around in double denim, she developed a tendency to take on patients with uncomfortable gut symptoms. Many of these patients had IBS. That's irritable bowel syndrome. It's an intestinal disorder that causes pain in the stomach, wind, diarrhea, and constipation. It's not great fun. I'm actually here with Lucy today who lives with IBS. So did you want to start by telling us a bit about you, what you do, and when you realized something wasn't quite right with your gut?
1: Yeah. So my name's Lucy. Um, I'm a medical student at the moment, but I first discovered that something wasn't quite right with my gut when I was in high school.
0: What kind of symptoms were you having?
1: Pain after eating and like I'd cramp up every single day. Like I thought I was just always hungry because I was told, you know, that's the only thing that can really, if your stomach hurts, you're probably hungry and bad flatulence, which like as an insecure teenager is never ideal. <laughs> um, oh, I, what else would I get? Just pain was the worst bit. Pain, really severe bloating um, to the effect that like my stomach would ache from how much it was being stretched out. I miss my own 18th birthday Because I had cake and afterwards I was in so much pain I couldn't even stand up.
0: We aren't super clear on the causes of this disease, which makes things a little bit tricky. But we know that some of its symptoms can be caused by food, stress and food intolerances. These factors can lead to the muscles in your intestines contracting when they shouldn't, which can make you fart or bloat or get explosive diarrhoea. Or sometimes they don't contract enough, leading to constipation. We also think that the nervous system plays a part in IBS pain. When the brain and the bowel don't talk to each other properly, kind of like your dysfunctional best friend and her boyfriend, the intestines can overreact to changes in the digestive process, like different foods and quantities, again, leading to pain and spending a while on the toilet. There is also evidence that changes in gut microflora, those are all the good bacteria that hang out in your stomach and digestive tracts, can cause IBS and IBS-like symptoms. When you take antibiotics, or have a big night out on the town, you can kill off some of these good bacteria which help you to digest food. Anyway, back to Sue. She had success with the patients she was treating when they followed the fructose malabsorption diet. Sounds complicated, but what it means is just leaving out foods like honey, fruit, wheat, and vegetables like onions, which contain fructose which is a simple sugar molecule that can combine with other fructose molecules to create fructans, which are a type of carbohydrate. These patients weren't having as many symptoms when they were following this diet. So to learn more about why this approach was working, she teamed up with researchers at Monash University in Melbourne. In 2005, the team discovered a group of short chain carbohydrates like fructose and fructans that were difficult or impossible for some people to digest. Today, We call those FODMAPs. So when did you decide to start looking into sorting this out and how did you do it? So
1: I asked my GP about it when I was in school and she suspected it could be irritable bowel syndrome. We ran a few tests. I discovered I was lactose intolerant, which is quite common in people with IBS, Mm. but I was also sensitive to a lot of other foods. And I had to do an elimination diet called the FODMAP diet to work out what each of those were.
0: FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. It's a mouthful. I know I had to record that bit at least six times before I got each of them right. But each of these different carbohydrates were found to be responsible for similar digestive effects, like the ones we talked about earlier. Over time, Monash has been able to test a whole variety of foods for their FODMAP content and been able to identify which FODMAPs are present in fruits, vegetables, breads, cereals, and a whole raft of other things. This has formed to the basis of what we now call the low FODMAP diet to treat IBS. The diet's temporary. It usually takes between two and six weeks to get results and it's split into three main stages. First, elimination. Here, you have to remove all the FODMAPs from your diet to test if FODMAPs are the things that are causing your symptoms. If when you remove the FODMAPs from your diet, you start to feel better, then we know that there is a connection between those FODMAPs that you're eating and the symptoms that you're having. Secondly, the reintroduction phase. This is where we add each different FODMAP group back into the diet one by one and test for symptoms. This is so we can identify which FODMAP group is causing your symptoms and whether or not it's one group or more. Finally, the third phase is personalization. This is when we can start to add back in the groups that didn't cause reactions permanently. Not everyone is sensitive to all the FODMAP groups and to maintain a balanced diet over time, it's really important to put the foods you can tolerate back into your diet and only leave out the ones that make you feel not so good. So when you got to the reintroduction stage, what sort of foods did you, um, did you find that you were sensitive to?
1: A lot of foods, sadly. Um, oh. The worst for me were onion, garlic and wheat.
0: No garlic, um, like a vampire.
1: Exactly, yes. <laughs> and the anti-garlic stigma. <laughs> no, my breath always smells amazing, but it's so sad because I'd relied on onion and garlic so heavily in my cooking before. Mm. And I had to go through a whole phase of just discovering how I could make food taste good.
0: So what kind of cooking techniques and recipes did you turn to? Do you have any tips for um, people who might be following the low FODMAP diet in the future?
1: Yeah, so I found out that at first it limited my cooking a lot, but now it's introduced me to a whole lot of new techniques and new cuisines. So before I typically just ate sort of a very standard Western diet. But it turns out that a lot of traditional um, Ethiopian and Asian um, cooking techniques can be really good. Tofu is a low FODMAP product. So a lot of stir fries I started to introduce myself to, as well as Indian food, since you can still eat some lentils. So dal's can be fantastic. And the Indian spice hing or a sofotita, um is quite good as a replacement for onion and garlic because it has a similar sort of flavour. Because even things like chili, which isn't considered high FODMAP, can still be a digestive upset for some. And like alcohol as well, sadly, can be quite a gastrointestinal irritant.
0: No big nights out, huh?
1: Well, no, not ideally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I've also heard that using garlic infused oils and various infused oils are really good for adding flavour to low fodmap
1: cooking. That's true as well.
0: So would you say that your symptoms are well managed by these changes to your diet?
1: Mostly, like I'm no longer, you know, on the ground in pain on a regular basis. It can be hard to long-term maintain a low FODMAP diet. Going out to eat is a big challenge um, because there's not a lot of public awareness or really any low FODMAP options. And it can also be quite hard if I'm staying at a friend's house or if I haven't prepped myself for going away. I had a recent trip to Italy, um, which was terrible when it came to gastrointestinal stuff, because there were just no options most places I went.
0: Shows how important raising awareness and kind of reducing the stigma around talking about and dealing with digestive disorders is.
1: Like my parents initially just thought, you know, it would be just the FODMAP diet, then it would be over. And the concept that these restrictions I'd have to keep up my whole life, I think they found really hard to adjust to. That is a concept. Mm. Um, and there just isn't a huge amount of understanding. Like I know a lot of hospitals don't necessarily have low FODMAP options for inpatient stays. And I think that's something that'd be really good to introduce because IBS is very prevalent.
0: It's really important to remember that the low FODMAP diet is a temporary diagnostic diet. And it shouldn't be used for weight loss, particularly if you have other dietary requirements like being vegan or gluten free. It's really important that after you have gained your IBS diagnosis, that you seek help from a dietitian. You can find a link to FODMAP friendly dietitians at intheguts.com forward slash about. Do you have any tips for anyone starting out on the low FODMAP diet? There's a lot of apps and online
1: resources, which I highly recommend going to first. Um, It can be really confusing and quite daunting at first because there's just so many different foods and portions and it can be really hard to learn how to introduce, how to just get used to doing it. But if you have a few fail-safe recipes that you can turn to, that makes it so much easier. I just want to add, it's super daunting and it can feel really alienating at times if you can't go out to eat with your friends, if you can't eat cake at your own birthday party. You have to not drink when everyone around you is drinking, but it's worth it. And you're not the only person in this boat and it does
0: get easier with time. Couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) So we've learned all about what gut sensitivities and IBS look like and their symptoms. We know what FODMAPs are and I won't make you say all the names again. But what other research is on the horizon? Well, Monash is currently exploring the links between IBS and mental health. We don't understand very well yet how the nervous system links the gut and your brain, but we think that nerves in our stomachs might be responsible for sending messages to our brains which cause stress, anxiety, and depression. Of course, we are constantly retesting what we know about FODMAPs and the low FODMAP diet, and Monash University is regularly reassessing their assumptions. If you were listening to this podcast and thinking, wow, this sounds like me, then you're probably right. IBS affects up to one in seven in the population, according to Monash, and many more people report sensitive gut symptoms. Again, we're not doctors, so we can't tell you what to do to fix your symptoms, but we can direct you to intheguts.com forward slash about to learn about making an appointment with your GP to start the process of feeling better. Next week, I'm going to walk you through the world of food chemical intolerances and their impact on the gut. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform and head across to our social media pipes, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to keep up to date with the latest news and research.